Heavenly Father, as we continue looking at the life of Abraham, and specifically as we're going to be studying the story of Sodom this morning, uh, we pray that you would give us maturity as we try to understand uh, some, some difficult topics in the scriptures. Uh, we need to approach this book with a level of respect and a level of seriousness because it is sacred, it is holy. And so give us the ability to do that this morning. And like always, we thank you for your word. Uh, we agree with the psalmist David that your word is praiseworthy, even as you are praiseworthy. And as we take time to study it this morning, we pray that just as you opened the eyes of your disciples to understand the scriptures, that you would do the same for us this morning. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So yesterday, uh, we looked at the life of Abraham. And Abraham uh, is called out of Babylon in order to go to the land that God will show him. And God makes him these really big promises. I'll give you a great name. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll bless all the families of the earth through you. And I'll give you and your descendants the land of Canaan. And we got to chapter 17. And God had made those promises decades ago. And had Abraham really seen many of them come true yet? No. No. He has one son, but that son is Ishmael. And who was Ishmael's mom? Hagar. Hagar. Was that a legitimate marriage? No. No. And Ishmael will not be considered a, a legitimate child. God will, in some senses, bless Ishmael. All right? Ishmael will have 12 sons. And grow into a great nation, which sounds kind of similar to Israel, doesn't it? Um, But the promises that have been made to Abraham will not be passed on to Ishmael. Um, And throughout the story, God continued to show up to Abraham and kind of intensify these promises. Well, how great of a nation will Abraham grow into? It'll be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. And then in chapter 15, God goes through this ceremony where these animals are split in half and he walks down the aisle and he makes this into a covenant. He says, if I don't do these things that I've promised you, Abram, may I become like these animals. And we talked about how it's very difficult not to see uh, something of the cross in that story. Uh, We left off in chapter 17 where God gave Abram a sign of all the promises he had made to him. And that sign starts with a C. What's that big C word? Circumcision. Circumcision. Um, Men who are descended from Abram uh, will receive the sign of circumcision where the foreskin, uh, a part of their reproductive organ, will be removed with a flint knife. And uh, this is a painful process. It is a bloody process. Uh, But it is something that sets Abraham and his children apart from all the other nations of the world. This is God's people, not those others. Uh, Circumcision uh, is also a picture of dying and coming to life. In circumcision... Uh, It takes a a period of time to recover, and in Hebrew, the way that you talk about that recovery is when they came to life again. And so there's a picture of of death and rebirth there. Um, Circumcision also has to do with the parts of the body that are responsible for reproduction. 
Abram has been promised that he will grow into a great nation and that through him and through his offspring, God will bring blessing to the entire world. The one who will be born of the woman and will crush the head of the serpent is going to come from Abram's line specifically. And circumcision anticipates that one day that Savior will be born by putting a mark uh, on that certain uh, organ that is responsible for reproduction. So, um, Abram is given the sign of circumcision. In chapter 17, Abram is also given a name change. Abram was a name associated with the Babylonian religion, which meant something. Yeah, great father, good. And God changes his name to Abraham, uh, which is an intensification. It means something like father of nations, maybe father of many nations, something along those lines. Uh, And the idea here is that what the Babylonian gods had kind of promised Abram, they couldn't deliver on. But the God that he now walks with can make these things come true. In chapter 17, Sarai is also renamed. Sarai had been a name meaning princess. And she is now Sarah. And this ah at the end um, is an abbreviated form of God's name. Uh, you, you all know um, uh, God reveals himself to his people uh, by the name. Sometimes we do it Jehovah. Sometimes we do it Yahweh, right? Uh, the ah at the end of Sarah's name is an abbreviated form of Yahweh. So she goes from being princess to being Yahweh's princess. God's princess. And so now she's being associated with this God that Abraham follows and walks with. Uh, You guys know that in Judaism, uh, they don't really like to pronounce this name. Did you know that? The name Yahweh, if uh, later um, in between the Old and New Testaments, there will kind of be this idea that you don't want to pronounce God's personal name, Yahweh, because uh, there's a fear that you might mispronounce it, and then maybe you're taking God's name in vain or something. Uh, I'd point out to you that the name Yahweh is used all throughout the Old Testament by God's people. It's, it's put into people's names like it is here. Uh, Old Testament believers had no problem saying it, and we shouldn't have any problem saying it either. Uh, it's superstition to try to avoid saying it. God revealed to Moses at the burning bush and said, my name is Yahweh. Uh, And whenever you go to Egypt and they ask what God has sent you, say Yahweh sent me. And so uh, it is a name that we are supposed to say. But sometimes I say it in classes and people have heard, oh, don't say that name. And they get a little bit concerned. That's not a biblical idea. You should say the name. Um, But Sarai is renamed to Sarah. And in chapter 17, God promises that Abraham will have a son by Sarah. Right? And... Right now, uh, Abraham is 99 and Sarah is 98. By the time they have the kid, Abram will be 100 and Sarah will be 99. Okay. So, um, there is a prom. I think that's right. Pretty sure that's right. I might have that wrong, but I'm pretty sure she's 99. I think she's one year younger. Does that sound right? Abraham is, a, is definitely a hundred. Um, 
I don't know. Now that I've said that, I wonder if I, if I have that 100% correct. But anyways, um, maybe, maybe she's younger than that. Maybe it's 90. Yeah, because I thought she was around 10 years younger. Yeah, that sounds better, actually, now that I say that. Well, we'll go through it, and we'll find it at some point uh, where it gives an age to Sarah. I think you're right. I think she is 10 years. For some reason, I had it in my mind that it was one year. Um, so anyways, what? where is it? Of chapter 17? Yeah. It says, Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old? Good. Yeah, you guys are right. 10 years younger, 90 years old. Thank you. Um, yeah, I said that, and then I was like, wait, that, that doesn't sound quite right. Okay, there we go. Well, there you go. You guys have read this recently, and so you're able to pick up on it. Good. So, um, but in, in that passage, uh, in verse the paragraph that starts in verse 15, um, God comes to Abram or Abraham now and says, you will have a son by Sarah. And Abraham's response is to do what? Does he believe God? Yes. No, no. No. Do you remember what Abraham does? Abraham laughs at God. What if Sarah laughed? She'll do it later, but Abraham does it first. It says in verse 17, the one that Joy Lynch just talked about, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? He laughs. Well, a little bit later, well, God's going to finish and say, no, this really will happen. A little while later, Abraham is at the door of his tent and he looks out and he sees three men approaching. And Abraham immediately recognizes that somehow in this kind of weird way, these three men are who? Oh God. Angels are God. They're God. He addresses all of them as one person, as, as God. All right? Now, this is kind of a weird thing because this is going to get a little bit tricky. We aren't going to have a hundred... I'll say this. We're going to recognize something really weird in the text today, and it's probably going to be later until I tell you exactly what's going on. We need a little bit more information before I give you exactly what's going on. All right. But he looks in chapter 18 uh, and he sees these three men approaching. But in chapter 18, he addresses them as one person and he recognizes that these three men aren't really men. It's it's God showing up. And so Abram uh, Abraham now goes to Sarah and, and, and they have this huge feast prepared and the amount of food that these three men eat is insane. They eat an entire cow. Like just, there's more food too, but these three guys eat an entire cow. So just like throwing that out there, it, it's, a, it's a pretty insane uh, thing going on here. Can three like actual human beings, like Three of you middle school boys, you guys can eat a lot of food. Can you put down an entire cow in one no. meal? No. All right. So they eat this huge meal, and then uh, they start talking to Abraham. Sarah is still inside of the tent, and they start telling Abraham about how Sarah will conceive and she will bear a child. And Sarah is listening at the door of the tent, and what does Sarah do? She laughs. She laughs. Um, it, it says. Um, it says uh, in verse, chapter 18, verse 11, it says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. But God said, no, but you did laugh. I have an article that should be hopefully coming out pretty soon on on this passage, and it pairs it with a passage in 1 Peter 3. Whenever it gets published, if it gets published, it should get published uh, pretty soon. Whenever it it comes out, uh, I may assign that as like an extra credit reading. If you read it and answer a couple questions, I may give you some bonus points because it'll pull out some things from this text that we don't have time to go over right now. So uh, this happens in chapter 18, this scene that we've been going over. How many men appear to Abram? Uh, How many? Three. Three. There's three that appear to Abraham. And he addresses all of them collectively as if they were how many people? One. One. And he, collect, he, he, he talks to them collectively as if this is God. So uh, he will use, uh, you know, instead of looking at them and saying, you guys or you all, he'll just say you, singular, right? So you've got uh, Abraham and then you've got these three guys who... Uh, are addressed as, as one person collectively they are addressed as if they are God alright so this scene happens and then Abraham goes on a walk with them so the four of them go a little ways and Abraham and one of the guys uh, kind of are on top of a hill alright so this is God Abraham and God are on top of a hill and, and then two of the guys go down the hill, all right, and they are going to go to a city called Sodom. Now, these two guys, what were they called back in chapter 18? God. Yeah, he addresses all of them as God, and now he's on top of the hill with, with one of them. He's going to talk to this guy, call him God. Uh, and we're going to talk about them, the other two, in just a second. Now, finishing chapter 18, God and Abraham are standing up on a hill, and they're looking down on Sodom. And Abraham and God start having a conversation, and God says, uh, there's been a great outcry that has come to me about Sodom. Sodom is a place of what type of men? Wicked men, right? We've seen that already in the text. It's a place of wicked men. And God says, there's been a great outcry that's come up to me from Sodom and from Gomorrah, and God is going to sweep the city away and the surrounding cities as well. And Abraham has a problem with that. What is Abraham's problem with that? Yeah, Lot lives in Sodom. So Abraham starts having this back and forth conversation with God. He says, okay, you're going to destroy Sodom. And God says, yes, I am. And Abraham says, okay, but what if there were 50 righteous people in Sodom? And God says, I wouldn't sweep it away. Those 50 people, I would protect them. I wouldn't sweep the city away. And Abraham says, okay, well, let's see. What if there were 40? And God says, for the sake of 40 righteous people, I wouldn't sweep the city away. What if there was 30? Or 20? Or 10? Now, what is he really getting to? How many righteous people does Abraham think are in the city? One. And he's trying to figure out, like, okay, what's going to happen to my nephew Lot? And God over and over again says, okay, for 30 people, for 20 people, for 10 people, I wouldn't sweep it away. 
And by the end of this conversation, Abraham leaves, and it seems like Abraham is is sort of comforted by this because God has made a promise to protect the righteous. All right, he's going to judge the wicked, but he'll protect the righteous. Has there been a part in Scripture where the world is generally wicked, but God saves the righteous? Yeah, the flood, right? And here kind of similar situation to the flood you've got an entire area of wickedness but is there a a righteous person in sodom yeah somebody has been crying out because of the sins of sodom haven't they the you know god says the outcry against sodom has come up to me and um if you were we're not going to do this right now but if you were to flip to second peter chapter two it would tell you who that outcry came from Guess who's crying out about the sins of Sodom? Lot. Lot is. Now, what we're going to see is Lot is a pretty good member of Sodom. All right. Uh, Lot is 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 like basically on their city council, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, but deep down in his heart of hearts, Lot recognizes that there's a lot of wickedness going on in the city. And Lot is in turmoil over it. Lot is praying that God would intervene and that God would do something. All right? You'll, you kind of can get that from the book of Genesis. Second Peter chapter 2 really highlights it. So let's get into this story of Sodom. Uh, look on with me at Genesis 19. Genesis 19 verse 1 says, The two what came to Sodom? So what are these guys being called now? Angels. Angels. All right. Keep that in mind because back in chapter 18, what did it look like they were? God. God. And now they're being called angels. Is that kind of weird? Okay. So the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. As we keep going throughout the Old Testament, we're going to realize that the gate of a city is the place where all sorts of political and economic decisions are made. Uh, It's at the gate of the city that Boaz will go and do business so that he can marry and redeem Ruth, right? It's a place where, um, you guys ever gone into Hardee's at like 6 a.m. and you see all the old guys sitting around at a table, all right? The gate of the city is where all the old guys sit around at a table and they debate what should happen in this city politically and economically. It is a place of power. It is a place of decision. Lot sitting in the gate of the city means that he is one of the people that makes a whole bunch of the decisions in Sodom. He's one of the leaders of the city. Yes? So, wait, sorry about the old men. No, no, that's getting us too far off. All right? Now, in chapter 19... It says, when Lot saw them, the angels, he rose to meet them and bowed himself to the, with his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may raise, uh, rise up early and go on your way. But they said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. That word for town square, by the way, is kind of weird. Um, it, it's... Um, the, the word for town square, what a town square is, is it's a big open area where you could have like different sorts of festivals, different sorts of parades. It's a really big open outdoor area, okay? Um, and the way that you kind of say it in, in Hebrew is um, you just kind of call it the large place. 
So town, we're kind of supplying town square. Um, it, in Hebrew, um, they're, they're literally saying we're going to stay in the large place. And in Hebrew, the word is Rahab. Um, and you should probably make a note of that. Yeah, what does that look like, Zach? Rahab. Rahab. And is there an important person named Rahab later in the Bible? Yep. Yeah, so you should make a note that this is what this means. We're going to have to come back to that whenever we get into the book of Joshua. So, um, Lot, in verse 3, presses them strongly. So they turned aside and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So the angels come in, and they say, we're going to stay in the town square. We're just going to sleep there tonight. And Lot is like, no, come into my house. Stay in my house under my roof. He shows hospitality, right? He invites them in. Um, The reason why is this. Um, Ezekiel chapter 16 talks about Sodom. And Ezekiel 16 mentions the sins of Sodom. And, and this is what it says. This is Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. The sins that Ezekiel highlights of Sodom are that it's a place of pride. It's a place of prosperity, excess of food, uh, lots of money, lots of goods, but they don't take care of the poor. They don't take care of the needy. In fact, um, it's likely that if you were a person who stayed in Sodom, but you were not a citizen of the city, you had absolutely no rights. Somebody beat you up and steal all your stuff and you try to go to the courts to complain about it, they would say, you don't live here, tough. Is that right? No. No, it's not. You know, somebody, uh, somebody robs you blind, right? And you go to the court in Sodom and they say, are you a citizen of the city? And you say, no, I'm a traveler. They say, you don't have any rights here. It's a place of prosperity. It's a place that doesn't take care of the poor and needy. It's a place that that hoards goods and keeps it to themselves. And so Lot, knowing, uh, okay, these people are journeyers. They're sojourners. uh, They're travelers. Well, if they stay in the city square, terrible things could happen to them. And would the political body of Sodom protect them at all and make it right? No. So he says, come into my house. You'll have a measure of safety there. You'll be under my roof. In verse 4, though, it says, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Well, that word for no is an important word in the Old Testament. You might remember back in Genesis 4 that Adam knew Eve and then they had a son named Cain. It's a sexual word. So the men of Sodom want to sexually abuse these two travelers. They want Lot to throw them out, throw these two men out so that they can, they can abuse them. All right? In verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance 
and he shut the door after him. So this is kind of a brave thing, right? These men surround the house and they say, give us those men who are traveling. And, and Lot goes outside and he closes the door behind him. And he addresses the men of the city in verse 7 and says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Is that a pretty brave thing for, for Lot to do? Yes. Yeah. Verse 8, let's see what we think about him in verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man yet. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. He's like, you can have my daughters, but not these men. Yeah, you can rape my daughters, but like, yeah. Is it, is it a good, brave thing that he goes out there and says you can't have those men? But you can. Yes, that, that was a brave thing. But whenever he says, and by the way, I'll throw my daughters out here. No. Yeah, yeah. You girls, imagine, imagine your dad said that. Imagine you're sitting on the other side of the door and you hear your dad. All right. What would have been the, the better response? Better response would have been, you guys, yeah, I know I'm outnumbered 50 with one, but you guys better get lost because it'll happen over my dead body. Right, and and that's not what Lot does. He's willing to sell his daughters out. So we've seen some good things. Yeah, he does. He has two daughters. He's telling the truth. So we've seen some some good things. All right, he's praying about the sins of Sodom. He is hospitable, and then he shows uh, some initial courage. But this is kind of a you know one strike, Lot. Verse nine. But the men of the city said, "Stand back." And they said, this fellow came to sojourn among us, and he has become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than we will with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men, meaning the angels in verse 10, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men, so what are they being called now? They're not being called angels right now. They're being called what again? Men. All right, so they, they were called God over here. Now they're being called angels. Now they're just being referred to as men over and over again. Okay. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we're about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were about to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be what? Jesting. Jesting. What does jesting mean? Yeah, they thought he was joking. So um, Lot comes in and he says, hey, the Lord is about to destroy the city because we've been really, really sinful. And we've got to go right now. And they think he's what? Joking. joking. They don't take him seriously. What does that tell you about Lot? Has Lot been a person who has taken the things of the Lord very seriously? No. 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 You know, if he was someone who took the things of the Lord seriously and he walked in and said this, the sons-in-law would realize he was being... Yeah, probably serious and straightforward. Uh, but this is a guy that, that maybe hasn't, you know, talking, talked a whole bunch about his faith. Uh, they think he's jesting. So in verse 15, it says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. 
but he lingered. Does he want to leave Sodom? No. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord, being merciful to him, uh, brought him out and set him outside the city. So Lot leaves Sodom, but he leaves Sodom being drugged by two angels, kicking and screaming. Great look. No. No. Verse 17, and as they brought him out, and, and I love the detail, but the Lord, being merciful with him, drug him out against his will, right? Uh, verse 17, and as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I can't escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Basically what he's saying is, the hills are too far away, and if I'm trying to run there, uh, you know, maybe I wouldn't be fast enough, and then God's wrath would fall on me, and I would die. They're too far away. Verse 20, but I have an alternate solution. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's just a little one. Let me escape there. Isn't it a little one? And my life will be saved. Basically, yeah, I know you're going to destroy not only Sodom, but all the other surrounding towns, but that one's pretty close, and it's really small. Yeah, it's wicked, but it's really small, so let me just go there and just, like, don't destroy that one. It's closer. Why do you sound like that? Huh? Why do you sound like me? that? Me? Yeah. I'm, I'm acting like Lot, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, what? <laughs> I mean, imagine that. God sends a message. This place is about to be destroyed. Go to those hills and you won't die. And Lot's like, mm, that sounds too hard. Can I go to that city instead? That's what he's saying, isn't it? Right? Verse 21, the angel said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city to which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. (laughs) Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then verse 24, then the Lord, what do you notice about Lord in that text? All of, all of the letters are what? Capitalized. capitalized. Um, Lord, whenever it is all capitalized in Scripture, that is uh, meaning that in Hebrew it is the word Yahweh, God's personal name. So in verse 24, Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from Yahweh out of heaven. So, God... After Abraham and God have this discussion here, uh, it says that God kind of like goes away, kind of disappears. All right? So God is up in heaven. But then in this verse, it says, Yahweh rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh, who is in heaven. So what are the angels being called again here? Yeah, they're being called Yahweh. The Yahweh who is down on earth is is calling up to the Yahweh in heaven and saying, rain the fire and sulfur down on Sodom now. So are they men? Are they angels? Are they Yahweh? There's a really easy solution to all of this, but again, we'll have to see some other things before we we get there. Yes, ma'am? Isn't there like an A in Yahweh? Yeah, if you spell it out all the way, you do it like this. 
Um, the four letters um, reflect, well, I'll get into that later. This is an abbreviated form, and I'll get into why a little bit later, but I don't want to rabbit trail into that. Verse 25, uh, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew up on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to take the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was. Uh, that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Okay. The New Testament uses uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as a picture of what will happen uh, to the earth on the last day of judgment. Uh, the, The judgment that falls on Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of the judgment that will fall on all the wicked on the last day, um, it, it's destroyed with fire and sulfur, and those two uh, things, fire and sulfur, are used in the book of Revelation to describe the lake of fire, uh, which is God's final judgment. And so uh, the fate of Sodom, it's kind of a foreshadowing of the fate of all those who live in sin and, and don't repent. Um, we'll get into that more later as well, though. Uh, Let's talk about what happens to Lot at the end of this story. Verse 30 is kind of funny. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills. What? Wow. He lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. Remember, Zoar is one of these cities next to Sodom. All of them were supposed to be destroyed because all of them were... Wicked. So Zoar is a wicked city. And uh, Lot is living there, and maybe it's not too far off from what Sodom was like. And so he gets scared, and he says, hmm, maybe I should go to the hills after all, just like God had said. Maybe you should have just listened the first time around. Um, So uh, it says in verse 30, about halfway through, uh, he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Verse 31 The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay down with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. That's important. That's a very important people group for the rest of the Old Testament. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, and he's the father of another very important people group in the Old Testament, the Ammonites to this day. So, um... Huh? Aren't they dead? Yeah, like whenever Genesis was written... I'm just asking now. Yeah, yeah, they're not around anymore. So, but the to this day means like whenever Genesis was written, right? It's not talking to people 
in 2022. It's talking to people, you know, a couple thousand years before Christ was born. So, um, you know, Lot sins throughout this story in pretty significant ways. And then the story ends and Lot winds up having incest with his daughters. But he has a great excuse. He says, well, I was too drunk to know the difference. That's not actually a great excuse. Um, by the way, you know that it takes like, like some alcohol. You can drink like a little bit and get drunk pretty fast. It takes a lot, it takes a lot of wine to get drunk off of wine. So, um, cause like you only have like certain percentages, like the cooking one is like 0.9% yeah. you have to drink the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, it. and this is back to back days, right? Abby. Well, their husbands didn't go out of Sodom with them. So their husbands died. Yeah. And I mean, like either way, um, you know, having relations with father, daughter like that is, is bad. Right. Um, Zach? Yes. Jeremiah? And then the headache that that guy must have had the next day. Yeah, that's true, too. So, um, next story. You know, Abram sees how God destroys Sodom, but he also sees that God honors his prayer. He was praying to God back in uh, chapter 18, asking that Lot would be delivered. And did God deliver Lot? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> you know, a uh, lot probably should have gone out a lot easier than what he did, but, but God honored uh, the prayer of Abraham and, and Lot was saved. So, um, you know, if you're Abraham now, you've gotten these promises from God and you've not seen them come true and you've prayed about it and God has intensified the promises, he's reiterated the promises, he's repeated the promises, um, and then... Uh, you know, he says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And you say, well, will you save Lot? And he says, yes. And then he does. You know, you, you're at a point now. Abraham's been walking with the Lord for quite a while. You're at a point now where you would think Abraham is ready to, you know, trust the Lord. Yeah. Next story. Abraham leaves Canaan. Uh, and he goes to the land that will later be the land of the Philistines um, called Gerar. Um, I, I guess it maybe is already being called the land of the Philistines in this text. But um, he goes to the city of, of Gerar and there um, there's a king named Abimelech who is king over uh, this group that uh, either maybe at this point is called the Philistines, definitely later on is called the Philistines. And Abram has to journey there, and he's living among uh, these pagans uh, in Abimelech's land, and he starts to get nervous because even though Sarah is 90, apparently she's still hot stuff, or at least he thinks so. I don't know. Or, you know, maybe something's going on with that. Who knows? Um, But, uh, you know, Abraham looks at Sarah and is like, hey, I'm kind of scared that they'll want to take you as a wife again. And that means they would kill me. And I know that God's made promises that you will have my son and that he has sworn this with an oath and made a covenant. And I know that God was powerful enough to destroy Sodom and save Lot, but I'm still kind of scared that maybe they'll take you as a wife and kill me and then none of these things will happen. So lie and say that you're my sister again. Buddy. So she does. And Abimelech sees Sarah and takes her to be his wife. And 
God again. Uh, this time, this is really funny, actually. Abimelech is, is a, it takes Sarah to be his wife. He doesn't have relations with her or anything, just brings her into his house. And then it, <laughs> this is so great. Um, uh, after he takes her into his house, if you look in chapter 20, verse 3, Uh, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Is that what yours says? So the Hebrew is way stronger. God shows up to Abimelech in a dream and says, Look, you are dead. (laughs) Like, not will be. (laughs) You are currently dead. (laughs) And uh, the translation softens it a little bit. But, I mean, you imagine that. You have a dream, and the Lord Almighty appears to you. And looks at you and says, Peter, you are dead. Not will be dead. You is dead. (laughs) Um, So um, Abimelech is like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on here? And um, God says, you've taken Sarah and she is Abraham's wife. And Abimelech says, he lied and said that she was his sister. And God said, you better do what's right. And Abimelech says, I will. So Abimelech, by God's grace, wakes up the next morning and calls Abraham in and says, why? Why did you do this? And Abraham says, well, I mean, like, it wasn't really a lie because she is my half-sister. And Abimelech is like, really, man? So he winds up giving Sarah back. He protects her dignity and honor, um, gives a small fortune to Abraham, just like Pharaoh had before. And... um, it, it, it talks about in the text how God had sent a plague on Abimelech's household as well, where none of the women of his land uh, could bear children because of the sin that had been committed. But Abimelech makes things right, and then he sends them off on their way again with a small fortune following them. Once again, in this story, you have Abraham, who is walking with the Lord, and, and does he do what he should do? Nope. No. And Abimelech, this pagan king does the right thing. Does the right thing. Does Very like, interesting, isn't it? Does God go back to Abimelech and say you're alive now or something? No, he doesn't do that, but you know, I just I just love that dream. You are dead. You know, yeah, not will be dead. You know, our translation softens it and it's like you are a dead man. You know, basically the the import is I will kill you. Um, but in Hebrew it's just literally you are dead. Right now. <laughs> dead <laughs> you know um i just i think that's really funny it's it's one of my favorite uh points in scripture yeah i think it's probably just a vision right uh so chapter 21 god's promises start to come true in chapter 21 the lord uh visited sarah as he had said and the lord did to sarah as he had promised Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. And she winds up naming this son what? What's what's the son's name? Isaac. Isaac. Anybody know what Isaac means? Laughter. Yeah, it means laughter. He laughs. And Sarah says that she names her son Isaac, and she says... um, in verse 6, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. 
What did Sarah do whenever she heard God's promise? And was that good or bad? Bad. And she kind of feels like God has done this in order to get the last laugh. You know, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Notice it doesn't say laugh with me. It's not like Sarah is joyful and then other people are joining in in her joy. The picture is people will laugh over me. Have you ever had somebody laugh over you? Yeah. Like, um, you know, in public school, something that would happen occasionally is that there would be a wet spot in the cafeteria. And if you weren't careful, you have like, you know, juice box and, and applesauce and stuff on your tray. And uh, you start walking and you hit that wet spot and your foot goes out from under you. And all of the stuff, you know, falls on top of you and you get nasty. And here you are on the, you hit your head on the floor and you're, oh man. And you're just covered in stuff. And people go over and instead of helping you up, they go, you know, um, they're, they're laughing. That's how, that's how people laugh in public school. You know, you know this, right? Um, so, so um, this is what laughing over means. Sarah feels like God is trying to kind of get her back for this. Now, is that true? No. No, but she feels like that's what's happening. And in the next story, um, once Isaac grows up a little bit, uh, Abraham throws this great party for Isaac. A great feast. We're celebrating that the son that God had promised me is here. And during this party, in verse 9, it says, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. The, the idea there is, I think, something like this. This great party has been thrown for Isaac, but who is the firstborn of Abraham? Ishmael. Ishmael. And at this great party for Isaac, Ishmael is walking through, and he's smiling, he's laughing, and he's saying, Isaac gets all this stuff right now, but I'm the firstborn. So guess who's going to get it later? Me. Yeah, Ishmael is, is laughing, saying, you know, I'm the firstborn, so Isaac can have his fun now, but later this is going to be mine. And whenever this happens, it really upsets Sarah, and Sarah goes to Abraham and says, I want you to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And Abraham initially is resistant to this. But then the Lord speaks to him and says, no, uh, I actually do want you to listen to Sarah right now. Ishmael is not going to be the one to inherit these things because Ishmael was not the child of the promise. I had promised you a son. And then you took matters into your own hands with Hagar and you had a kid. But I had promised you a miraculous son. And, and, and Ishmael is not that. So God speaks to, to Abraham and says, I do want you to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And Abraham does it. He obeys. He does. So Hagar and Ishmael at the end of chapter 21 are in a wilderness. Uh, they are on the brink of death, but the Lord again appears to them and provides for them, meets their needs, gives them what they need. Uh, and Ishmael grows up to be a skilled warrior. He grows up to be his, a mighty nation in his own right, the Ishmaelites. By the way, who is Joseph sold into slavery to? Later to the Egyptians, but first to the Ishmaelites. Uh, the Ishmaelites become a pretty powerful people group in the Old Testament. And they're kind of like a dark version of Israel. Ishmael will have 12 sons, 
which grow up into 12 tribes. And what does that sound like? Yeah, it sounds like Israel with the 12 tribes of Israel. So Ishmael is kind of this, this dark version of that, something along those lines, right? Uh, and he's associated mostly with what nation? What, where's his mom from? Egypt. So the Ishmaelites are, they're not Egyptians, they're a separate nation, but they're very closely associated with Egypt. And is Egypt usually good guy or bad guy in the Old Testament? Bad. Usually bad guy, all right? So chapter 22, um, chapter 21, birth of Isaac, we're celebrating, yay, you know, Isaac is here, uh, the promise has been fulfilled. Chapter 22, um, It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Verse 2, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God says to do what to Isaac? Sacrifice him. Kill him. Abraham has been waiting how long for this promise to be fulfilled? Like a hundred years? Not a hundred, but decades. Decades he's been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. It's fulfilled. By this point, by the way, um, the the text makes it seem like this happens right after Isaac is born. It's been quite a long time. Isaac is a young man by this point, uh, which becomes clear in the text as we continue to read. But, But he's like seven. But God says, I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Um, Whenever you sacrifice as a burnt offering, what you usually do to the animal is you skin it. You kill it. You bleed it. You skin it. You take uh, all of the inside parts and offer that. And then the skin is given to the priest to make clothes out of. So um, kill your son, flay him, burn him. Like not just a little bit dead, but like super dead. So... Um, that's where I think we will pause for today and tomorrow, uh, we will, tomorrow we will pick up, uh, finish the life of Abraham and then we will very, very quickly, uh, look at the life of Isaac and look at the life of Jacob and then, um, uh, let's see, tomorrow will be Thursday, um, Friday, we need to be looking primarily at the life of Joseph and the end of Genesis. Um, Your reading tonight, all you have left is Genesis 49 and 50, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you have Genesis 49 through 50 tonight. Let's talk briefly about your test on Monday. Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday. Tuesday. Monday is Labor Day. Ah, okay. Oh, baby. I forgot I was going to say about that. So, okay, well, let's talk about the test that you'll be taking on Tuesday then. Um, you, on this test, you'll have some multiple choice questions. All right, multiple choice questions. Um, will be from lectures and readings. It could be something along the lines of uh, what did God do on the sixth day? What did he do on the seventh day? You know, those are things that we talked about quite a lot. Um, Could be questions where I ask you, okay, um, this guy Jacob had two wives, uh, Leah and what's the other one's name? 
Rachel, and I might ask you which one did he want to marry, and then which one uh, did he wind up marrying first. He, he marries both of them eventually, right? Uh, but it could be questions like that. Um, you should be able to do the two charts I've given you. The overview of the Old Testament chart will be on it. The Proto-Evangelium chart will be on it, where uh, it was the uh, seven things, like the promises made to Adam and Eve, and then to Abraham, and then to Isaac, to Jacob, and how is it passed down. Uh, that chart will be on it. Um, there will be some uh, short answers. So on the short answers, um, you'll have a question where I ask you to explain why Abel's sacrifice was accepted, but Cain's was rejected. And I would expect you there to be able to reproduce quite a bit of what I told you about Genesis 4. You should probably talk about name meanings. You should talk about how one is humble and one is prideful. Uh, you know, you should be able to get into that sort of stuff. Uh, if you don't write it, I'm assuming you don't know it. So if you have, uh, you know, a lot of information down, uh, that's showing me you've got a good grasp. Uh, if you only write one sentence, that one sentence might contain true information, but I might write to the side that I took off points because I want you to be more detailed. Um, so you need to answer the question fully. So that would be a question um, on the short answer. I'll ask you to define the term proto-evangelium and to tell me what the proto-evangelium is. Um, let's see, what are the other short answers? Um, hmm. Trying to remember. It's been a while since I've looked at it. Well, I can kind of tell you what they are a little bit later on so that you can be preparing and studying. The three memory verses, uh, including the one that is due on Friday, will be on it. So you need to be ready to uh, write those down. Um, there are a few true and false. And on your true and false, every year there are people that try to make their F's and their T's. You know, uh, they'll do something like that. And, um, you know... Uh, that's just like kind of curved a little bit, but it's not curved enough where it really looks like it's curved. Uh, you need to make it very clear what is T and what is F. You know, uh, some people will try to do uh, this sort of a thing and uh, will say, well, that was a T, right? Uh, look, it goes all the way across. It's a T and I just put weird marks in my T's. Um, well, I can't really tell which one you mean, so if it's not clear, I just count it wrong. All right? So um, I'll tell you what the other short answers are a little bit later on and make sure that you have time to prepare for those. I'll, I'll do that at the beginning of class tomorrow. Um, but make sure that you are preparing for that, and it is time to go. So head on out. <laughs>